0: This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi everyone, welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. This episode is going to be our last episode where we have been discussing Pete Walker's book, The Doubt of Fully Feeling. Now, in my last episode, I mentioned that I would be doing chapter nine and somewhere in my head, I thought that there were nine chapters in this book. And I apparently had just been reading through the new pages, the new chapters, and hadn't paid attention that a new chapter had started. And so there's actually 13 chapters in this book, but chapters 10, 11, and 12, and 13, right? 13. Oh no, 14, 14, sorry are quite short chapters, just a page or two. And so I'm still gonna make this the last episode and I feel like we can cover the remainder of the book and do a good job in just this one episode. So chapter nine is about self-compassionate reparenting. And I like this quote by Carl Jung who says, "'In every adult there lurks a child, an eternal child, "'something that is always becoming, is never completed.'" and calls for unceasing care, attention, and education. That is the part of human personality which wants to develop and become whole. Now, Pete Walker says that self-compassionate reparenting is a term that he coined to describe his approach to remothering and refathering the inner child. He says, when we practice self-compassionate reparenting, we identify and provide for the unmet needs of our childhood so that we can grow into more complete, life-loving human beings. He says self-parenting rescues us from being needlessly frozen in old childhood fear and deprivation. When we understand how childhood abuse and neglect left us developmentally arrested, empathy naturally arises and motivates us to care for and protect ourselves. As this occurs, we commonly discover that our maturation process was suspended at various different stages of development and that we have a number of inner children awaiting our kindness and protection. Among these are the inner infant, inner toddler, inner preschooler, and so on. These distinctions are important because children have different needs at different developmental stages, and these correspond with a variety of different reparenting tasks. Now, he makes a comment saying that for many survivors, they're uncomfortable with the concept of the inner child, because they were forced at an early age, too early of an age, to become miniature adults and to hate their childlike characteristics as much as their parents did. He says survivors who do not like their inner children or children in general for that matter are often those who were not liked as children. He says when a child is not allowed to be a child, she abandons her child self and banishes it to her unconscious and tries to behave like an adult. Many of us find it difficult to get an authentic sense of our inner child because that part of ourselves is still hiding somewhere out of awareness, much like the actual child who had to hide in closets or bedrooms to escape abuse. The child's self often stays sequestered in the unconscious because the adult survivor, like his biological parents, reviles it whenever it emerges into awareness, seeking help or attention. He says self-compassionate reparenting begins with the decision to love our inner children and to protect them from self-abuse. And I like that because I think often for my clients, they think it has to start with a feeling, right? Or some type of experience instead of understanding that it starts with a decision. I'm making the decision to love my inner child and to protect them from self-abuse, right? I don't have to be the one beating up on them. I don't have to be the one criticizing them or shaming them. He says, for the purposes of becoming more fully feeling, we're going to focus for a minute on the primary tasks, emotional tasks of the reparenter. He says, these constellate around two crucial goals, the recovery and ongoing development of our inborn sense of self-acceptance and the reestablishment and strengthening of our instinctive sense of self-protection. So that's one of the goals that we're trying to accomplish by becoming more fully feeling And then second is that the inner child often expects to receive these two different types of emotional support along traditional gender lines. He says, now I understand that these distinctions that he's going to talk about, he says, I understand that they're sexist and that they're false, but he says the inner child is often not capable of being politically correct about them. He often dreams of having a mommy who is tender and a daddy who stands up for him. So he says, you know, whether or not you find it useful and you get to be your own source of both loving and tenderness and fierce protection, regardless of your gender, he says, you know, we can have men who imagine themselves rocking or even breastfeeding their inner child, their inner infant, just as women can imagine themselves fighting off anyone who is threatening to their inner child. He says, this is similar to what occurs in a functional family. Both biological parents share in the mothering and fathering of the children, and both move easily and flexibly between the roles of tenderness and strength. Again, I I think, you know, he's saying there that we don't want fathers to get stuck in this uh, self-protection mode and not be able to actually nurture. This is where I hear things like, you know, my dad only hit me one time and I deserved it and I learned a lesson and I'll never forget it, right? Something along those lines where, I mean, I don't know what makes a father punch his child, right? I witnessed that from my father with my two teenage brothers. But I think sometimes if fathers aren't able to give themselves permission to also be nurturing, then maybe they don't actually know how to have the conversation that's needed or to teach the lesson that is necessary for their child and for them to have that conversation Now, he talks about forgiving our inner children, and he says, you know, it's powerful. He quotes self-esteem guru Nathaniel Brandon, who says, When we learn to forgive the child we once were for what he or she didn't know or couldn't do or couldn't cope with or felt or didn't feel, when we understand and accept that child was struggling to survive the best way he or she could. Then the adult self is no longer in an adversarial relationship to the child self. One part is not at war with another part. He says, our inner child's heart, broken by a dearth of compassionate mothering, begins to heal when we turn inward with unconditional love and forgiveness. We add substance to this self-mothering by offering this child ongoing tenderness, listening, affection, and unconditional love. Consistency in such practices what allows our inner child to feel truly forgiven. He says we also enhance forgiveness by championing our inner child in a father-like way. We do this by using anger and blame to fight off internal or external aggression. Such actions prove to the child that she is not only forgiven, but also no longer subject to unfair blame. He says the efficacy of our reparenting is further enhanced by providing our inner children verbal, spiritual, and emotional nurturance. He says, when we give our inner children love, understanding, and protection consistently over time, they begin to shed their horrible burdens of fear, shame, and emptiness. As we become more successful in resisting the shaming and terrorizing attacks of our internalized critical parents, our inner children begin to feel safe enough to come forth In all their vital wonder and beauty, normal qualities of human existence like joy, peacefulness, friendliness, spontaneity, and playfulness naturally begin to reemerge as we master the practice of reparenting. So he gives an example of maybe how this looks for him. He says, we heal ourselves with self-fathering when we use our anger and blame to challenge inner messages of shame and self-hate. Maybe that anger, right, is more something we associate with males talked about that before in maybe in other episodes even talking about this book but also just in other episodes and so you know we get to self-father when we use anger on our behalf and we blame those who are responsible for what we're working through now he says speaking up in a protective way for the inner child makes it safe enough for her to once again inhabit consciousness then he says, I usually supplement my self-fathering with a kind of mothering that feeds self-esteem with positive and supportive statements. And again, fathers could do both of this, right? I've watched my husband be able to do both of these things or I've heard my husband do both of these things from my girls because he was the parent that they had at that time and he could both protect them and advocate for them and then get in the car with them and affirm them and give positive statements towards them. And I've done the same. I've been able to both protect my daughters and also affirm their worth and give them nurturing and love. He says, I imagine my inner child sitting on my lap or resting in my heart. I remind him that he is absolutely and eminently lovable just as he is. And then he goes into kind of an example of the conversation that he would have with that inner child, which is really beautiful if you want to read that. He says, other times when my inner child opens up to me, I tell him how much I wish I could have saved him from that. And I remind him that I feel especially tender when he gets angry or cries or gets upset because I know what that was like. And he says, I also remind my inner child of my patience and my empathy for his fear around unknown adults or Whatever things he is encountering in the current, in the present, that trigger emotional flashbacks or trigger those things from the past. And, you know, kind of reaffirm that he's going to be protective to that inner child. I remember, I think I've mentioned before that I have been doing over, I started last year about this time, lifespan integration uh, training, which is a trauma modality. And I'm almost done, there's four levels, and I will complete level four in May of this year. And I think it was in level two or three, I don't remember which level it was in, we learned a particular protocol, um, which is called the attunement protocol. And this is one, You know, maybe you've done some other trauma work, you've cleaned out some things, you've had some insight, you've had awareness, you've been able to go back and have conversations with that younger self, and now the way that the trainer explained it was now we're going to go back in and put things in that were not there, right? So attunement, securities, affirmations to that child, to that younger self. In this particular training, we have to, as is often the case with therapists, you know, we have to practice. And so we take turns We're, you know, with all of the protocols, we're both a therapist and a client. And sometimes if we're in a out of three or a triad of three, we have an observer, right? Someone who's just kind of there watching and maybe helping reminding or whatever, but usually just an observer. And, and so, you know, we were doing this attunement protocol. I was feeling uncomfortable as they were teaching this, you know, one of my coworkers was there and she was like, I don't want to do this one. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not really looking forward to this, which really kind of was this, manifestation or a verbalization of how uncomfortable another person attuning to me was, especially ones that I had not gotten to know, spent years getting to know and building trust with, right? And so we kind of started the protocol when it was my turn to be the client and the other person was being the therapist. We did have an observer and And I found myself like pushing myself back in my chair, like trying to create more distance between me and the clinician as we were doing this protocol. And I'm listening to her, right? I was trying to, I was trying to lean in when I, in actuality, I was actually leaning out. The observer kind of pointed that out to me and I was trying to lean in and I was more in my head, I would say, I was kind of having a dialogue with myself or like not really going down into my body, not going into how this felt or how this might feel going through this protocol and more keeping it up in my head. And, you know, we did that. I don't know. I think we ran through that protocol probably three or four times before it started to just organically, I didn't have to force it, but started to organically shift into more of my body and you know the words that she's saying like it's just kind of sinking in and I started to feel something right and started to feel this attunement and it's always an interesting experience for me and my clients say the same thing with lifespan this process of having insight and awareness and feeling and connecting dots and all of these things and it's happening quite quickly you know, even as, as we're going through the protocol, I mean, this, it doesn't take, you know, hours of time and we're feeling so many things on so many levels at the same time in a relatively short period of time. And I just kind of walked away from that training with this, like, you know, cause I, again, I, I've done a lot of work on myself. I've done a lot of work on my trauma. And for the most part, I will say to myself, I say to people who I have these conversations with, for the most part, I feel like I'm okay, right? And I've done a lot of healing to bring me to this place. But that protocol, I could see gaps. I could see where I was, yes, I was okay. And I had benefited from the work that I had done. And if I had these things, How much more natural, how much more organic would kind of bridging that gap and going to a different level feel for me? And so, you know, he talks about self-mothering. He says the most essential task of self-mothering is restoring the individual to a deeply felt sense that he is lovable and deserves to be loved. Now, I know I, I didn't have that. I did not have that as a kid. I became aware during this, I was okay up until we get to about three years old, but you know, I, or I mean, I don't have a lot of memories. We talked about this last episode. I don't have a lot of memories prior to three. My first, my first implicit memory is at three, but I knew by three, I kind of felt not entirely on my own because I had a babysitter who I could rely on and who I felt like, was my safe person. Although that babysitter was only 10 years old, I felt like that had shifted away from my parents and had shifted more to this babysitter or this 10-year-old. He says, self-mothering is the practice of actively and passively loving the inner child in all their mental, emotional, and energetic states. As I read that, I thought about you know my third daughter. She had a lot of energy. She still does. But as a kid, she had a lot of energy, more than the typical, right? And so in many ways she would fit that definition of a difficult child, right? I felt like I had to put more energy into her than the other kids. Not that I didn't feel like I had to put energy into the other kids, but you know, for example, if she got bored, which was common, she woke up bored, and she didn't have something to do, right? She was a very hands-on kind of kid. She, and she didn't like to watch TV. She didn't read. She didn't really sit still while she was awake. But sometimes her older sister, she loved to read, right? So she might be reading a book and this daughter is bugging her because she doesn't want her to read a book. She wanted her to do something with her, right? And I'd have to say like, hey, come over here, like leave her alone, let her read. And there were times where, you know, she just needed a timeout. And Unlike, you know, we kind of think about timeouts, it wasn't a timeout for me, right? I would kind of have to like take some deep breaths before taking her into timeout because I sat in timeout with her, right? And I would usually like sit with my back to her bedroom door so that she couldn't run out and do whatever she would do. And so I would sit with my back against the bedroom door, right? So that she couldn't really get out. But I became like this human jungle gym and she would climb all over me and, she just would, you know, and, and she'd like throw balls back and forth with me. This is, I mean, she's like four five, six, something like that. We do whatever we'd sit in the room and, you know, I would just kind of have to absorb this energy as she's, uh, expressing this energy. Right. And it was not, I wasn't punishing her. It's not like I was ignoring her, right. I was engaging with her, which is why I had to kind of like take some deep breaths so that I was kind of going in with my energy being somewhat neutral or clean, right? And eventually it would end with her kind of laying across my legs and I would be like rubbing her back and we'd just kind of be talking normal tones and she'd kind of get through that huge energy burst and come down the other side. And and then, you know, we'd go out and everything would be fine. But that happened, you know, at least once a week during those earlier years for her, he said, self-mothering is based on the precept that unconditional love is every child's birthright. He says, as I mother my inner child, I am eternally committed to relating to myself from a compassionate point of view. I strive to give my inner child an experience of completely non-defended relationship with another human being. He says self-mothering proceeds most effectively from the realization that self-punishment is counterproductive. With that particular child, punishing her would have been counterproductive. And I saw this happen. The third child in my family was also pretty difficult. And my family of origin was also pretty difficult. And I saw countless times my mom putting him in his bedroom for timeout and then holding the door while he fought her to try to open that door. And I mean, that could go on for an hour before he gave up and fell asleep on the floor or something like that. And she would just hold on to her side of the doorknob, keeping that door shut. That's a defended relationship with that human being, right? That is literally saying, I'm shutting you away from me as a consequence He says, self-mothering is a hearty refusal to indulge self-hatred. Understanding and gentle guidance are more effective than self-rejection in achieving self-discipline and remedying self-destructive behavior. He says, we enhance our self-mothering skills by imaginatively creating a safe space in our hearts where our inner children are always welcome. This may help the inner child discover for the first time that it is possible to have a relationship with another that is not either empty or dangerous. He says consistent tenderness welcomes the child into the adult body he now inhabits and shows him that it is now a nurturing place protected by a warm and powerful adult. Then he says self-mothering can also be enhanced through the use of the healing affirmations in this book or just other affirmations of self He says, we need to make sure they're designed, his are, to satisfy child needs at various stages of development because they vary. He says, another essential task of self-mothering involves offering the inner child the opportunity to speak unashamedly about any and all aspects of her experience. I remember twice, I think it was twice, with this particular daughter in elementary school. Actually, I can think of three times, first grade, second grade and third grade where you know she got in trouble at school and a few of the times she was sent home with instruction or a note to come back to the school with me which I was a working mom so fortunately on those times I was home for a meeting with the teacher and you know one of these times it was in second grade she was in a Spanish immersion program so she had an English teacher and a Spanish teacher And she had gotten in trouble with her English teacher. But both teachers were there for this conference that we were having at the end of this school day. And so I went, she came home. She was like, mom, you've got to come back to school with me. I got in trouble with Mrs. Smith and we have to go back and have a meeting. And I was like, okay. I I didn't even know. I didn't even get the story. I mean, the school was not far from us, but I did not even get the story about what I was walking in with. And so we go into this meeting. Both teachers are there. Her and I are there. And, you know, Mrs. Smith starts and thanks me for coming and says, you know, did she get the opportunity to tell you what happened today? And I said, no, we didn't have time for that conversation. And she says, well, let me tell you, you know, so she said, uh, this daughter was particularly disruptive in class today. And so I put her in timeout. Again, this is the child where I had to be in timeout with her, right? When she was younger. She said, so I put her in refocus. Actually, it wasn't called timeout It was called. I put her in refocus, which was just a corner of the classroom. And she was supposed to write. I don't remember what she was supposed to write. She was supposed to write something as a consequence. And she says instead, she sat with her fingernail and peeled all of the yellow paint off of the pencil. And I was like, okay. And then that was the end of the school day. And she was told to bring me back for a meeting. Right. And so I was like, okay. And so the Spanish teacher who, you know, was a little bit more, I don't know, flexible or a little more easygoing and could appreciate this child's personality, you know, and I'm kind of looking at my daughter and she's kind of slumped in her chair with her arms folded and she's angry. Right. And so the Spanish teacher, you know, says to her like, do you have anything that you want to add? And she sits up in her chair and leans forward and is like, well, first of all, Mrs. Smith. And I was like, holy cow. Okay. Like, And so, you know, for this particular incident, she's well, she said, I'm still not even sure what happened, what, what got her in refocus. Right. So she sits up and she says, first of all, Mrs. Smith, Billy farted. And it was not just a small fart. It was a loud fart that hit the chair and got even louder. And she's like, and I'm sorry, I don't care who you are. Farts are funny. And I started laughing. And she's like, and sometimes when I laugh, I can't stop. And so I couldn't stop because this was so funny. I just couldn't stop. She's like, I wasn't making fun of Billy. I didn't hurt Billy's feelings. I just kept laughing. And, you know, Mrs. Smith says, yes, but then the whole class was disrupted and started laughing because you were laughing. And, you know, my child is sitting there and she says, well, that's because farts are funny. And I'm just like kind of sitting here thinking like, I don't even know what the parenting manual says to do in this type of situation. But also this daughter seems to be doing fairly well. So I'll just sit next to her and let her speak for herself and advocate for herself and so she said i was going to refocus i just needed to get my laughter out but then you made me go and write whatever it was i don't remember and she's like and i just don't think i should have to write that because i didn't do anything wrong now fortunately at this point the spanish teacher kind of stepped in because mrs smith was not appreciating her retelling of the story or clearly had a different perspective. So the Spanish teacher kind of stepped in and said, well, you know, I mean, you're right, farts are funny. And like, I don't remember what it was. And anyway, she was like, maybe, you know, you can have your mom take you and you can purchase some new pencils for the classroom and we'll call it good. And, you know, my child was like, that's fine. We can do that. And I was like, okay. Sounds good. Like sounds like we're all on the same page, and you know, and and my child was okay as we walked out to the car. You know, she kind of vented a little bit more about that situation and how unjust she felt that she had been treated. And you know, I just said to her, "So are, are you okay? If we go and we buy some pencils, you take them tomorrow. We're good. We can just let that go. Is there anything else here?" And she was like, "No. As long as I am not in trouble for that, because I don't feel like I did anything wrong." Okay. Sounds like we're good. You know, And had a conversation. We went and bought the pencils, had a fine evening. You know, I kind of mentioned to my husband later, like next time we get called in, it's your turn. Because I've at that point had done two of them. So again, this part where he talks about how this task of self-mothering, you know, I mean, in this case, it was me, the mother, mothering my child. But in an instance of self-mothering, That inner child is given the opportunity to speak unashamedly about any and all aspects of her experience. And she doesn't have to filter that and she doesn't have to use nice words or she doesn't have to be respectful to this authority figure. She gets to use the words that she needs to use in order to express what happened to her and what was unjust. He writes, in early self-mothering, the inner child commonly comes into consciousness with a dire need to express her unreleased reservoir of pain. She will not come forth on the condition that she behave only like a nice, pleasant little girl. That was the prohibition that banished her to the unconscious in the first place. Most inner children initially need to spend significant amounts of time going over and grieving the detailed memories of their abuse and abandonment. They usually need a great deal of permission to complain, cry and blame. When inner children are not shamed or rejected for catharding, they eventually feel safe enough to talk about other lost aspects of themselves, such as their dreams, needs, desires, joys, and enthusiasms. In our men's group a couple weeks ago, the one that I'm involved with, we were talking about you know, what were those dreams that that younger you had, that that little boy had, what were the dreams that he had for himself? And I think all of the men, if I'm remembering correctly, said, I I don't know. I I don't know. I don't think I did. I think I was just getting through. I don't don't think I had dreams, right? Which again, those dreams should be defended and protected by the mother. And if they're not, you have self-mothering work to do to go back and to protect those. One day when I was driving with um, my kids in the car, I think this daughter number three was probably, I don't know, she was probably like five or something like that. So I think I had all of my kids, but the youngest one was young and didn't really participate in this conversation. And so they were talking about what they wanted to do when they grew up, right? And number one is an animal lover. She's also allergic to most animals, but she loves animals. And so she didn't know if she wanted to be a zookeeper or a vet, but she definitely wanted to work with animals daughter number two wanted to be a nurse and she wanted to take care of newborn babies she was a little hesitant to take care of newborn babies that had problems but she definitely wanted to take care of newborn babies and so then daughter number three it gets to her turn right and she announces that she's going to be a train and her two older sisters kind of have this look of bewilderment on their face and one of them says well you can't really be a train and she's like "Uh uh-huh mom right you said i could be anything like when I grow up, I can be anything. And so the other daughter kind of steps in and is trying to explain to her that like, well, but if you're a person, you still have to be a person. You can't be a person and then become a train. Like you can drive the train if you want to drive the train, but you can't be the train, right? And so this clicked for daughter number three. She was like, okay, got it. And she was like, okay, I'm going to be strawberry shortcake. And again, my, my two daughters were just kind of like, mm, kind of there. But not, but they also were just like, okay, that's at least a human being, right? And she was thrilled with the idea of being strawberry shortcake when she grew up. Not that strawberry shortcake is an adult, right? But again, it's those dreams, whether they're unrealistic, whether they're something that can make money, provide a living, those types of things, mothers don't need to insert reality as a way of killing those dreams for kids. Mothers need to be the guardians of those dreams. They need to be encouraging those dreams, right? They need to be helping kids dream. You know, sometimes you do that by reading them books or having conversations, like we talked about last time. Generous time spent in conversations with kids. Those dreams will come about. Again, in the beginning, they may not be all that realistic, and that's fine, right? She is now, that daughter is now 22. She's not pursuing either being a train or a strawberry shortcake. And so again, that just didn't necessarily need to be corrected. So self-fathering, he talks about self-fathering focuses primarily on healing the wounds of neglect. Self-fathering heals the wounds of abuse. Self-fathering gestates assertiveness and self-protection. It includes confronting external or internal abuse and standing up for the adult child's rights. He talks about a self-fathering exercise that he has, the time machine rescue. And he says, you know, it's very powerful for him. He's shared it with clients he's worked with. And this is on page 213. If you want to reference that and go look at that and read that and read through that and even try it for yourself. I know, again, this was difficult for me, not this time through, but like when I was doing work around my dad in therapy years ago, this was a difficult one for me because... You know, I felt safest and most comfortable not thinking of my dad and not having my dad be really an active part of my life. Not that my dad was trying to be an active part of my life. But I also know that watching my husband be a father, especially to daughters, you know, sometimes I would say to him, like, I understand why, I mean, again, this is kind of biological, so I'm not actually talking about the science. But in some of our conversations I'll say I understand why maybe I needed four daughters to do my own work around myself as a female. And four daughters who are different in personality and different in temperaments and different in passions and pursuits. But I'm like, I don't know why you needed four daughters. And maybe I do. I mean, my husband came from a family of four boys and one girl and You know, that his sister was definitely, she was the youngest. She was definitely daddy's little girl. She was definitely treated differently. And so maybe for him, kind of reclaiming some of the fathering through having daughters, again, that's just what we ended up with, right? Was also part of his own healing work around uh, being just one of the boys, right? And being maybe treated differently as a kid. But I remember, um, I might have shared this before. I remember one time my kids were younger. And I I was working later. I, I remember I don't know. I mean, because depending on the time of year, right? I could be coming home at six o'clock at night and it would be dark. But I remember coming home this night. It was dark. Got into the house. It was kind of quieter than normal, so it wasn't late at night because then I would expect people to be asleep. But I was expecting, you know, just the sounds of my house. And I walked in and it was kind of quiet. And I was kind of putting my stuff down and kind of like, where are people? And could kind of hear some faint voices and kind of walk to this. It was more of a formal front room that we didn't spend a lot of time in. Like sometimes, especially daughter number two who loved to read. She loved to go in on that couch and curl up and read a book. But we didn't spend a ton of time in that room. So I I was kind of like, that's kind of a strange place for them to be. Walk down the hall. Yep, that's where they were. And there was this little girl that, I mean, I had seen her before. I didn't know her. She wasn't the age of any of my girls. And she's on the floor. She was younger than my youngest. She was, I would say she was probably four or five. Very long hair that came down close to the, uh, you know, bottom of her back. Very long hair. And it just had burrs all over in her hair. And, you know, I and my girls are there. And one's like sitting in front of her, like talking to her and reading her a book. And they're just all there. And my husband has a set of needle nose pliers. And he's just like slowly un- winding the hair from these burrs and then getting the brush and kind of combing it out and then rewinding more hair off of the burr with these needle nose pliers. Not the scene I was expecting, you know, when I came home and I was like, what's going on? And this little girl kind of looks at me and you could tell she'd been crying and she was just like, I was with my brother and I got all these burrs in my hair and my brother was going to cut my hair to get the burrs out. And she's like and I told him no and she's like I was like I'm going to go to the girl's house and she's like I know that there's girls that live here and so I just knocked on the door and I asked if you guys could help me get the burrs out and I'm kind of like okay and I look at my husband and I'm like why the needle nose pliers and he's like what else do you use I don't these are the tools that I'm used to using like I don't know like what else would I use right and so I was just like okay and kind of went and got into more comfortable clothes and came back in and we just kind of chatted with her and you know talked about what they were doing and how she got the burrs and just who she was and that type of stuff. That was one of those times where watching him sit and do something as tedious as unwinding piece by piece this hair out of the burr with needle nose pliers, I was like, wow, I had no idea that fathering could look like this. I had no idea that fathering could look this way. Several years go by. We had a young man who lived with us for about a year. You know, I mean, he would still go to family functions or different things like that. But you know, my oldest just brought him home one day. We didn't really know him, and he just kind of lived with us. He was going through a really hard year in his life. He was 15, and he just, you know, through a series of events, ended up kind of living with us for a year, which was fine, you know, and I had to say things like, hey, I'm not seeing you do homework. Like, do you have homework? And he's like, well, I'm kind of failing all my classes. And I was like, all right, well, that's like, that's not really acceptable. And so let's get the homework out. And this is, we do it after school, and then it's done. And then you don't have to, you know, procrastinate and dread the homework. And, you know, and, and my kids were really good to kind of help him and you know, my one daughter's really good with writing and so she could edit his papers or give him some ideas about, you know, things she heard him talk about and like, why don't you add that to your paper? That's interesting and different things like that. I mean, they were, um, my two oldest were a little bit older than him and the two younger ones were a little bit younger than him. My two oldest daughters are the first people he ever said, I think I'm gay too. And that was part of the struggle that he was going through in his life. And reconciling that and knowing that that would be difficult on his family and the culture that they were from. And so we just kind of had this safe place for him to come home to and be while he sorted all of that out. And I remember, you know, one night he was going to a family party and it was in a town probably an hour north of where we lived and he was going to be with family. The plan was for him to sleep over. And initially he was like, "Yeah, I think I'm going to be fine." And we were like, "Great." And then as it got a little bit closer, he said, well, if I'm, if, if things aren't going well and I don't feel safe and I want to come home, can I call? And you know, my husband was like, absolutely. And I mean, me too. I'm like, absolutely. Right. Like, sure. You don't need to sleep someplace if you're not feeling safe. And so sure enough that night, I think it was like two, two thirty in the morning. My husband's cell phone rings. He picks it up you know i i wake up i hear him kind of say hello and he's kind of like uh-huh okay drop me a pin where you are i'm on my way and he hangs up and he starts you know pulling his pants on and i said what's going on and he's like it's aaron i'm i'm going to pick him up and i'm like okay and he left went and picked him up brought him home you know, the next morning I said, you know, what, what happened? Or, cause I was asleep, I think when he got back home and got into bed and he said, you know, I don't really know exactly what happened, but things were said. He just didn't feel safe going to sleep. And he's like, and I just reassured to him that he is loved and I'm sorry that they don't understand what you're experiencing and that that doesn't change who you are and the value that you hold. And, I just brought him home. And I was, again, just that like, you know, I mean, I think my daughters knew that he would do the same for them. They hadn't been in a situation like that where they needed him to, but they definitely heard the next day about that experience. And again, just that reaffirming to them that like, yep, that's what dads do. That's what your dad does. And I mean, again, I would have done the same thing I, as a female. Like, that's not just a male quality, right? But we're talking about self fathering. He says when you consistently show your inner child that she is really safe and fully welcome in every aspect of her being, she will become more and more alive and self expressive. As she experiences you consistently rising to her defense, she will feel free enough to reclaim the emotionality that fuels her innate spiritedness, playfulness curiosity, and flexibility. Just kind of wanted to finish talking about like what I learned watching my husband father. And that wasn't just those times, right? I, I mean, I can think of countless times that he's done things for our daughters, right? Or with our daughters. You know, it was particularly hard for me when I recognized like daughter number three, she's the one with a lot of energy. And people have always told me that she looks like me that she acts like me. I kind of always said the brother that was just under me, who was kind of a difficult child. You know, when your parents say, I hope you have a child just like you, which again is in a form of emotional and verbal abuse. My mom would say that to me, but she would also particularly say that to my brother, right? And so often I would say, hey, I got your child. Like I got a difficult child. But the older she got and things that happened, memories came back for me. And I was like, oh, actually, I think I ended up with the right child. And I remember once being in a store with this particular daughter, and I ran into somebody that I hadn't seen since elementary school. And I think actually she wasn't with me, but she was not far. And I was talking to this person from elementary school and just kind of chatting. And my daughter starts walking over towards me. And this person says, oh, my gosh, that is the spitting image of you. Now, again, I was a kid of the 70s and 80s. So my hair, I had not good hairstyles, but also my mom always was the one that cut my hair. So that may may be part of it as well versus, you know, my daughter just had normal girl hair, right? And, And she kind of walked over and she was talking to me about something and she walked back away. I think we were at Target and she was looking for a shirt or something. And this person from elementary school said like, her mannerisms, the way she walks. Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm looking at you and we're back in time. Now, I hadn't necessarily noticed that about that daughter. Like I didn't know we walked similarly or we had similar mannerisms. Like when I looked at her, I did not see me. But I was starting to have memories of my childhood as I went through different memories with her. And she was definitely a daddy's girl. Now I say that and all of my girls in their own way adore their dad and for valid reasons like he is a very good father to them but she particularly from a very young infant loved to be held by dad right like I have a picture when we were at the park one day as a family and we were feeding the ducks and I just snapped a picture I'm so glad I did I didn't have my cell phone on me right so I couldn't like just easily take pictures, but I happen to have my camera on. I happen to snap a picture and it's just the two of them up a little ways. And she's kind of laughing with him. They're looking at each other and she's holding his hand. And that's something she would always do, right? Even even well into high school and sometimes still today, she will grab his hand and hold his hand. And she was just a daddy's girl. And it was a painful thing for me to realize that I also was a daddy's girl. I just didn't really have a dad who cared about that or could notice that or did anything with that. And so there was some healing and some work I had to do around their relationship and the loss that it brought up for me not having that, but recognizing that in myself. He says, reparenting and forgiving the inner child fosters authentic experiences of self-forgiveness. Once we understand how terribly abandoned the child was, we cannot help but have compassion for him or her. This compassion sometimes moves us to wonder about our parents' childhoods. As we understand the hardships of their upbringing, we sometimes feel like their childhood travails our extenuating circumstances. That allows us to feel forgiveness towards them. The relationship of extenuating circumstances is what he's going to talk about in chapter 10. So I'm seeing that we're coming up on time. So maybe what I'll do is end here and then we'll do chapters 10 through 14 in the next episode. And I'm going to drop them all at the same time or on the same day or close to the same day. Can't speak for my office manager who does that for me. But I'm going to just go ahead and record those ones and we'll release them all at the same time. And then we can close this book and start to really digest and integrate what we've been learning and what we've been talking about. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment, and does not constitute therapy, I am enough. Amen.